0: A large portion of the New Testament is made up of letters. We call them epistles. Letters that Paul writes to churches that he's planted or to missionaries he sent out like Timothy and Titus. And the ones that are written to churches, the letters like Romans or Galatians or Ephesians. Almost all of them have a predictable format. Okay? Almost all of them can be separated very easily into two halves. In the first half, Paul lays out the truth of who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. And in the second half, he applies it. Okay? So, for example, if grammar is your thing, and you were to open up the book of Ephesians, and you were to look for all the imperative verbs, the verbs are put, that are put in a tense of command, right? So, going is a verb, but go is a command, right? Those are imperative verbs. If you go looking in Ephesians for imperative verbs, you will only find one before chapter four. And even that one is remember. You see how remember actually kind of just focuses on the truth? But once you get to chapter four, they're every other sentence. Okay. And the problem is, as we read through these letters, and especially as we read through them as a congregation and study them over the course of months, paragraph by paragraph, we can easily neglect one half because we're living in the other. And so we can focus on all the truths in the first half for months and learn who God is, but not ask, all right, what's the implication for my life? Or we can settle in, as we'll do today, into the commandments that are laid out, the way that we should live, and we can neglect the foundation that Paul has lived. In other words, we always have to keep the therefore in mind. Because God has done this in Jesus Christ, therefore... When we don't, we often put the cart before the horse, or we neglect the truth of the gospel, or even deny it in our actions, even though we're trying to do the right thing. Okay. And so, I want you to keep in mind, for those of you who were with us at the very beginning of the service, that this is built upon that full gospel articulation that James read for us this morning. That the exhortations here are built on that foundation, and I'll give you a quick road into it in just a second, but I want to read the passage first. Today we're in Galatians chapter 6, and we're picking up in verse 6. Paul writing to the church in Galatia says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now do you see here, although his presence is felt in this passage, Jesus is not named. Although the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus has been a prevalent and significant part of the letter of Galatians, here it's not in view. And so there's a danger that we would just read this alone or put it on an inspirational self-help calendar for today's focus or something like that. But this passage makes no sense without what proceeds. In fact, the things we are called to do here are impossible without the previous work of Christ that Jesus has laid out. When he says to sow to the Spirit, that's something only those who have received the Spirit can do. Right, And when he talks here about giving and doing good, which is clearly the focus of this whole passage, it's implicated because of the giving of Jesus. It's implicated because of the goodness that God has done. It is a response okay. that's significant. Now let me do this in strictly Galatians terms. At the beginning of this section, when Paul gets to the therefore of the letter of Galatians, this is how he communicates it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Okay. What is the truth? What is the indicative that pre-exists before the imperative? What is the truth that we are to apply? God has set you free in Jesus Christ. And so one of his concerns, he says, Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And primarily, he's talking about the Old Testament law, going back to the rules and regulations and using it as a means to justify ourselves before God. He says, no, 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 you were justified in Christ. You were forgiven in Christ. It's not what you have done, but what God has done that has made you righteous. But then he goes on and he says, but this freedom that you have, do not use it He says this in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And you see what we read in chapter 6, starting in verse 6, is just an exposition of that. Use your freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, for what you sow to the flesh will reap corruption, but instead use it to love one another or serve one another through love. And again, the emphasis in this passage is goodness. In fact, with this foundation laid, here's the point that I want to make first and primarily this morning. Freedom as the Bible envisions it is not freedom from people. Now, you may not need to hear that this morning. I am tremendously introverted. I need to hear that every morning. I need to remember that what God has given me is not freedom from people, clearly, there's a responsibility that we share to one another as a Christian community and a responsibility we share to our neighbors because Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This fulfills the whole law and Paul repeated the same thing just a few verses ago. Okay, Freedom here doesn't even look like selfishness, which is another way we interpret freedom. Freedom is the ability for me to do what I want. Freedom is the ability for me to enjoy what I enjoy. Freedom is the ability to not be constrained from me, 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 me. And Paul says, no, 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 no. True freedom leads to selflessness. True freedom is loving one another. So let's look again with that understanding. I want to read the passage one more time. I want to pray, and then we'll look closer. He says in verse 6, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of what? Of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a divine assistance this morning to keep the goodness that you have done in Jesus in mind? as we reflect on the goodness that we are called to do. I pray that you would help prevent the deception that thinks that a good life is costly, and instead, Lord, that we would see that it is rewarding. I pray, God, that you would instill in us the understanding that Paul here imparts to the Galatians, that there's a rule of the universe, a rule of your character, that sowing seeds of goodness will bring a harvest. We pray this in your name. Amen. You've probably heard me emphasize the word good throughout this passage, and the reason I do so is because at first glance, these different things seem like rapid fire and unrelated to commands. Pay your pastors, don't sow to your flesh, keep patient, do good to outsiders. But really, doing good runs through this whole thing. In fact, I think we can dial it in a little bit further and use the word sharing. Sharing is the focus of this passage. Sharing is the focus, and interestingly enough, he begins with a very specific example there in verse six. He says, "One who has taught the word must share in all good things with the one who teaches." Pay your pastors. That's effectively what he said. In fact, it's surprisingly practical, right? There's a tendency, I think, for us to think that a spiritual life or a spirit-filled life looks like monastic communities in the desert. Or it looks like ecstatic experiences of prayer. And that may be true, but eventually, either the Spirit controls your pocketbook or you don't know the Spirit. The life that God is calling us to is is very practical. It involves and touches on everything. But it's important that we recognize here that although Paul is clearly talking about providing for those who teach the Word, and we could rightly call that payment, payment, In fact, in another place, Paul doesn't pull any punches. He quotes Jesus as saying, the laborer is worthy of his wages and not to muzzle an ox, as it says in the Old Testament. But he says something slightly different here, and I think it's significant. Listen to the language again. One who is taught the word must share in all good things with the one who teaches. Two things about the language there. First off, he doesn't say give money to, or pay. He says, all good things. It's clearly a broader category. And that doesn't mean that any good thing you enjoy, I should get a cut. (laughs) Obviously. But it is broad. And then second is that word share. The word there is one of the big New Testament words. It's the word koinonia, where we get the word communion. It's a word that's sometimes translated as fellowship and sometimes translated as partnership and as it is here, sometimes translated as sharing, to have in common, okay? It's a big word, but it's different than pain, isn't it? He's not here talking about an exchange of goods and services. It's not, well, you gave me a donut, so I'll give you a dollar, Right? We don't usually say that we share with the grocery store in our good things. And we pay them. So why this emphasis? Why does he put it like this? I would suggest to you it's for two reasons. Okay. One is because it is a reflection of what pastors and teachers are doing for you. They are sharing in all good things. The calling a well, teacher of the Word of God is to hear the Word of God and then to helpfully and clearly communicate it so that it can be understood by others. It involves effort. In fact, it's always something that I think that two of the images of the ministry of the Word that are given in the New Testament are hardcore. Okay? One of them is that ox. Okay? An ox is worthy of... Of its labor, don't muzzle an ox. Okay, the whole idea of an ox is hard work. That's why none of you have one. You don't need one, right? That's how big the job is. But he also talks about those who share the word as being farmers, which is also a life that is harder than most of us experience. Right? It's one that leaves calluses on the hands. It's one that drains every ounce of you. It's supposed to be hard work. But it's also supposed to be joyful. And any of you who know me well know there's nothing I would rather be doing in the world than this right here, right now, for you. It's sharing. And so there's a reciprocity here that says just as you are being given to, so also give. But there's a second level that's involved. It comes to that deeper level. It's it's not just because I give, you should give. It's we have this in common. We're part of the same community. We're part of the same family. If I can use a slightly limited metaphor, it's like household chores. Right? Chores aren't something we should do for our allowance, at least this is what I tell my kids. Chores are something we do because this is our house. And this is how we collectively together live like a family. And by doing all the work together, we can do all the work. And so Paul uses the metaphor in other places of the body. And just as your body has fingers and toes and eyes and ears, and each one has its own function and value, so also us. We all bring different and unique gifts that God has given, different and unique perspectives that have been shaped in God's providence, different and unique abilities, all of these things, and together, collectively, we have something greater than the sum of its parts. That's fellowship. That's sharing. That's communion. But there's another part of this, too. And this one I'm drawing not so much from the idea itself in this first verse, in verse 6, but where Paul goes next. doesn't seem strange that he just gives this... And he says, share an all good thing with your pastors. And then the next thing he says is, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. It almost seems like a change in topic, which I think is a bad way to understand it. But so is making it a specific enforcement of verse 6. I think you can all imagine a pastor who would stand up front and say, look, you sow into me and you will reap abundance. Right? That would be a misapplication of this passage. But we can't shake the relationship between these two things. Why? Because as soon as Paul is done laying out this relationship between sowing and reaping, he goes back to the idea of doing good, not just to those who teach you, but to all people, especially those of this household, the household of faith. Right? He is on topic. He is on point. And that brings me to the last part of this idea of sharing. It's investing. Freeing up people so that they can devote themselves to the study of the word so that they're better equipped to teach it to you and to others is worth it. It's an investment. It is, as Paul labels here, sowing to the spirit. Now let me be clear. I have never been as well cared for by any community than I am this one. So I'm not really concerned about there being any more here. Most of you already know this, and I experience it all the time. And it's not just in a salary. It's in being able to partake of the joy that's a part of your life because I've been given a front row seat. Do you know how amazing it is that I get invited to stuff just because I'm the pastor? That's part of what Paul is talking about here. Sharing in all good things means that I get to show up at the hospital when the baby's been born, and so far it's only been family present, but I get let in. Why? I don't know, except that it fits what we're talking about right here. I experienced a very humbling and very true version of this this morning. I was praying, as we do every Sunday morning before the service at 9 a.m. right next door with a group of Christians, and one by one, they went around the room and they prayed for me. It's amazing, it's such a gift. But I know that the reason they do it is twofold. One, because they love me, and two, because they understand what Paul is talking about here. And they recognize that praying for me is of benefit to you, to them, to others. And so Paul starts with a very specific illustration, but that's really just a way to calibrate the device. He just has to start somewhere. And why does he start here? One of two reasons. One is either it's so practical that it's a good illustration or it's so neglected in the church in Galatia, he wants to start there. And I would suggest for the Galatians, it is in their best interest to have good teachers. Why? Because right now false teachers who don't have their good interest in heart are running around and trying to draw them away from the gospel. So if they are simultaneously neglecting those who could lead them in the right way by supporting their ministry, they're starving themselves. And they're leaving themselves vulnerable. Now, I mentioned to you earlier that this whole passage is built in the concept of freedom. And it's freedom from, if you read Galatians, the works of the law. And so it's striking here that what Paul does next in verse 7 is give us a law. Look at what he says. Brothers, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. He says here, don't fool yourselves. There is a law here that always works. Now granted, this is different than the works of the law he's been talking about. That is a law code. This is more like a natural law, a law of nature. Right? We can decriminalize things and you will no longer be held accountable for engaging in them. But whether they're decriminalized or not, they still will work out according to the natural laws. You can be free to jump off a cliff but you're not free not to fall, right? In the same way, Paul paints here a natural law that's true in the natural world, but is also, he says, true in the spiritual world. What you sow, you will reap, okay? Now, this is something that children discover very quickly. What you plant is what grows, okay? And so, when you plant good seed, you get good fruit. When you plant one type of seed, you get that type of fruit. And so you cannot, as Jesus illustrates on a similar principle, plant a thorn bush and harvest figs. And that's just the the nature of the world. As it says in the very beginning of Genesis, each tree reproduces according to its kind. It's never a surprise. It's not like opening a package of Pokemon cards. As long as what you planted is known... So is its outcome. And the truth is, we're never deceived. Outside of a handful of parables where magic beans create a vine, we're never deceived by this principle. Nor would we ever propose to mock God and say with confidence, I know that this is a pumpkin seed, but God be damned, I'm going to have oranges and plant them doesn't make any sense. We're just not that foolish. But he says the principle works out in anything you sow. And he says here, what you sow to the flesh reaps corruption. And what you sow to the spirit reaps eternal life. And I would suggest to you here that this idea of eternal life is not so much a quantity of life, like putting another quarter in the machine, but a quality A life eternal. But it's rooted in this same principle of sowing. And again, we can observe this just naturally. The way you feed your body feeds it. It doesn't change. It doesn't transform in your stomach to something else. If you eat garbage, you will feel like garbage. It's a natural principle. What is Paul's point here? Let's look closer. Look at what he says. He says, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now listen. This contrast, this dichotomy between the flesh and the Spirit isn't brand new to Galatians 6, chapter 7. It has been a primary topic topic all the way back into chapter 5. You may remember that Paul has already contrasted the works of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. And there he uses a metaphor of nature, of plant life, of farming, of fruit. Right. So he's still talking about the same thing. He's talking about the same thing, and there's one more thing that I think is helpful to notice here. In fact, I'd never noticed it until I was reading last night. This is either going to sound nerdy or arrogant. I don't mean it in either of those ways. But right now, for the first time in my life, I'm studying the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. And it's a neat thing to do. As I was reading, I noticed, here's the nerdy part, push up my glasses on on the bridge of my nose, that he says in verse 8 there, for the one who sows to his own flesh... He doesn't just say for the one who sows to the flesh. He says his own flesh. He uses a possessive pronoun. And I checked the Greek manuscript last night because I could. And it's there. That's not added for interpretation. Paul takes the time to say the one who sows to his own flesh. Now, when the Bible talks about the flesh, generally it just means the all natural you as you are found, the human part of you that is fallen. It means your sin nature, as Paul puts it in the book of Romans. Here's the truth. Can you sow to someone else's flesh? Not in the way that the Bible means it. So why add the pronoun? I think it's because it gets us at the heart of why this passage is here. It's that innately and inherently, the flesh is self-focused. But freedom, as Paul laid out here, is others-focused. And I'll prove it. I want to read to you again the works of the flesh. And then in quick, rapid succession, I want to read the fruit of the Spirit. And as I read the first group, I want you to think, who is at the center of this life? And as we read the fruit of the Spirit, I want to ask you, what is, it, is this life oriented towards? And so notice what he says here in verse 19 of the last chapter, chapter 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That is the life of self. It's a life of self that indulges the self, taking advantage of others in your sexual behavior. That's what sexual immorality always is. It's a life that is a life of conflict with others because they have become obstacles to what you think you deserve or earn or who you see yourself to be. It is a life of, um, uh, it is a life of self, of self-centeredness, of selfishness. Now listen to the fruit of the Spirit and I want you to recognize again that when the Bible defines spiritual... It's not just talking about esoteric experiences or yoga. The fruit of the Spirit here is tremendously social. Listen to it. He says here in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see how many of those require another person? The fruit of the spirit that is love requires someone to be loved. The fruit of the spirit requires patience, requires somebody to tolerate. The fruit of the spirit that requires kindness, right, implies that there's someone who you need to be kind to. One is an internal focus and the other is an external focus. It is that same thing that Paul is talking about in the law here. And what he wants to explain is when you feed the flesh, the flesh is fed. And when you feed the spirit, so also the spirit. When you sow to the flesh, you will reap. And when you sow to the spirit, you will reap. Now, this is significant because the danger is that sometimes we as Christians go, well, because I'm forgiven. And seen as righteous in Jesus Christ, and because I'm no longer subject to the works of the law, I can live as I like. And there is an honest sense where that is true. It has to be. Read the opening of Romans chapter 6. When he talks there about the law, the question on his religious arguer's minds, the ones he imagines responding, go, wait... If this grace is this big, then won't people just live like hell? They cannot ask that question unless the gospel is really that big. Grace is really that true. That salvation is found solely in the works of another in a free gift. However, he goes on he says, How can any who are dead to sin go on on to live any longer in it? It's not just a change in legal status, it's a change in nature. In the same way here, if you want to see your life before God as being decriminalized, so be it. That you will no longer bear the punishment or the wrath or the judgment that your sins incur, not just past, but present and future. That's fine. But that does not mean that you can escape the natural law of sin. Sin will still bear consequences. You see, there is the fact that sin brings about the judgment of God, and then there is the fact that sin is its own judgment. Mm. That it doesn't work. Mm. And so if you sow to the flesh, you will reap. But notice here that Paul's emphasis is just as equal, if not more focused on the other. If you sow to the Spirit, you will also reap. In fact, I would suggest that that's Paul's primary point because he goes on and he says, therefore, don't don't grow weary in doing good. Why does he put the emphasis there? See, here's, here's a difference between the flesh and the spirit. When you sow to the flesh, the gratification is instant and the cost is delayed. And in the same way, when you sow to the spirit most of the time, the cost is instant and the gratification is delayed that just seems to be the way it works with sin, with the flesh it's part of what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of sin if it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it if it didn't seem advantageous we wouldn't try it but it's a lie it never works it writes checks that it cannot catch and at the same time it brings about significant consequence eventually Ultimately. Don't be deceived. What Paul is encouraging us to do here is to see actions not just in what they are, but where they lead. And this is really important because you all know that this logic is true. We are a people of progress and plans. And so what happens is sometimes in our mind... Bad things become good things because they get us here. And the ends justify the means. Very rarely do we sin because we want something bad. Almost always we want one of God's good gifts. We just take a shortcut to get there. And so we know this is wrong and we think, but I just want this. And this justifies it. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The problem is not that you need to stop looking at where this leads. He says, you need to look further down the road. Mm. You need to look to where this really leads. Mm. And so what happens when we sow to the flesh, when we engage in the works of the flesh, as listed in chapter 5? We will reap corruption. Mm. Now, this is an interesting thing, because effectively here, Paul is saying that the life you enjoy right now is the byproduct of the life you lived yesterday. And this is another thing that makes this decision a counterintuitive one for us. Because we look around and we say, everything is fine. Look how great it is. I've never felt closer to God or to my friends. So we justify a little bit of compromise, failure, these types of things. But we are both eating last season's harvest and planting next season's. But again, Paul's concern here is not that this church is given over to corruption or some sort of licentious behavior that doesn't care the way they live. His real concern here is that they might not be willing to bear the cost of doing good. His real concern here, as he says in the next verse there, look at verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. See, the thing about sowing and reaping, like I said, is it's not instantaneous. It takes time. And again, in the natural world, we both get this, and yet in the modern world, we're not patient enough for this. When we plant that tomato every season as Seattleites, we think, oh, this is gonna be the best. But it only takes about two weeks of loving care until we start to go, do I have to keep doing this? do I have to come out here every day? Where can I cut corners and skimp? Where can I just entrust these things? We're not going to have tomatoes till the end of the summer. In the same way Paul recognizes here that oftentimes we do the right thing and we go, what's the point? It didn't make a difference anyways. Hmm. I engaged in this relationship with patience and as far as I can tell, the outcome is the same. I slowed down and operated in self-control. But what difference did it make? I've sought to pour myself out in love and this is how they repay me? I know you've had these thoughts. These are natural and normal and human thoughts. Now the truth is, as Christians who understand the scripture, it's very easy for us to say, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And what you sow to the flesh will reap corruption. And we go, yep, yep. I know that. I've experienced that. I believe that. But don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever you sow to the Spirit will reap everlasting life. It's just as significant here. And this is the backbone for everything Paul says. Let's put ourselves in a different situation. Imagine you're in a rural church and your pastor's just nothing special. And you think, why would I ever pay so that this guy could be full-time? And then you do so as a congregation. And you start supporting his salary, and three months later, he still doesn't seem like he's really that beneficial. Suddenly this promise becomes important. In due season, if you do not give up hope. In the same way, Anytime you display the love of the Spirit or the patience of the Spirit or the joy of the Spirit, there's going to be a place where you go, it doesn't seem to matter. In due season, if you do not give up hope, it will bear fruit. Now, I want you to notice something here. Paul doesn't get specific and uh, tell us what the fruit will be. And I think this is really significant. Because we are capable, because we are planners, because we are end oriented, we are capable of seeking to manipulate the circumstances to get the outcome that we prefer, no matter the cost. And so, if we were given a manual here for a successful marriage, we would keep it to the letter to assure that our marriage never fell apart. But that's not what Paul says. He doesn't say if you sow into this relationship, the relationship will flourish. Because a relationship takes two people. He doesn't say if you invest in your pasture, then your pocketbook will grow. But he does tell you that it will bear fruit. And that means two things. One is you will not regret it. In fact, this is one of the neatest things about seeds and harvest, isn't it? Although they are related, they are not equal. What we sow, we receive more so. Have you noticed that? In other words, if I could change the metaphor, you should think about the way you live your life as an investment. Is the decisions you make every day as an investment. And the good news that Paul lays out here is that this is in the bank of God. And not only does that bank never cause the stock market to crumble because it can't be trusted, but more importantly, you've never seen an interest rate like this one. And again, this is true in the most spiritual big sense that's hard to quantify, and it's also true in the most practical. This is why the Old Testament says when you lend to the poor, God will you." you. Okay. Does that mean that you're going to find a fiver on the street tomorrow? No. Does it mean he's going to bless your business so now you'll be a millionaire because you did your part? No. But I promise you, when the dust has settled on your life and you stand before God in glory, you'll say no regrets. Mm. That's what Paul is talking about here. Now I want to emphasize one more thing before we look at the last verse. As he says here in verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is a verse that you should memorize. This is a verse you need. This is a verse when things get hard, you need to preach the truth of it to yourself, knowing that it's true and that God is faithful. And if you need a reminder of it, just read through Galatians and recognize that Paul says that God gave promises to Abraham 4,000 years before Jesus came and fulfilled everyone in Jesus. His promises are yes and amen. They will be completed. And again, to use that investment me- uh, investment metaphor, you can bank on it. So don't grow weary. And don't lose hope. But remember that you've sown a seed and it may lay fallow for a long time. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have the potential for life. One quick illustration. There was a... Um, a German who lived in London by the name of George Mueller. George Mueller learned that God keeps his promises. And it changed his prayer life to the fact that if you prayed with George George Mueller, his prayers always seemed arrogant and nonsensical because they were so blatant and so big. But through that prayer, he provided for hundreds of kids in an orphanage he started day by day as God took care of him. But one of the things that he never saw an instant response to was praying for his two closest non Christian friends, who he prayed for every morning and every evening, every day. And across his entire life, they never became Christians until his funeral, and they both gave their lives to the Lord. That is a manifestation of what we're talking about here. George Mueller doesn't look at all of those additional moments. All of the energy that he put into praying for his friends is wasted. Now, with that in mind, let's read the closing verse here, verse 10. So then. Do you see that opening? Still talking about the same thing. Because what we sow, we will reap. Because the harvest will come. Because God cannot be mocked. So then. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. No act of kindness, no selfless act, no expression of abundant love is ever wasted in the life of a Christian. So, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone. And then he goes on and he says, And especially those who are of the household of faith. I want you to notice two things here. He doesn't draw a boundary around our doing good. He doesn't say, do good to your family, or even to the family of the church. He doesn't say, these are the people that you need to care about, forget about the rest of them. He doesn't draw a boundary around goodness. As you have opportunity for everyone, do good. But he does give us a center And he does give us a starting place, especially, he says, to the household of faith. Now, again, we see a touch point with why he addressed their sharing in the ministry of pastors first. Because they're part of that household. Because they have a role to play for the benefit of the family. And so, effectively, this is what I would suggest. Let's use the word generosity. Again, doing good here is not just about your money. It's about uh, about your time. It's about your abilities and how you employ them. It's about so many things. Doing good is so much more than money. However, let's use generosity as a lens to see how this works out. Your generosity should begin right here in the church. And I don't just mean in your tithes and offerings. I mean in the way that you care for one another. Read Acts chapter 2. How that community became a place where poverty was not named among them because anyone who had need was taken care of. That is as it should be. But it shouldn't stop here. It should extend beyond here. It should move into all places and things. And the reason, the incentive here is not just because that's the right thing to do. And this is the profound, amazing thing about this passage. It's because it's the rewarding thing to do because it's the obvious and unregrettable choice. Now, I don't know how to pick apart the distance between self-interest and doing good is in your best interest, except to say that there is a difference there. But Paul has no problem telling you that it is worth your while to do good. Now, let me bring it full circle. This only makes sense if, as I said in the introduction, you keep the cross of Christ and the gift of salvation in your rearview mirror. And it does that for two reasons. One is, because although doing good here is rewarding and what you sow you will reap, it'll always be hamstrung if you're doing it to gain the system. You cannot love others selfishly. It's a contradiction. You can love others rewardingly, absolutely, but you cannot love others selfishly. And that includes doing good. If your reason for doing good as you have opportunity is so that you get, you know, all the rewards of heaven. If you do it to earn God's favor then it's really just a long con. It's really just playing a part that's not true at the level of your heart. And the truth is, it never works. We're pretty good as human beings at seeing through self-centered love. But also, if you have received the gift available in Jesus Christ, this freely offered, completely fulfilled salvation, that came so costly in sacrifice and is the greatest expression of love that's ever been, then this desire to do goodness is freed up to be natural and normal because your greatest need is already taken care of. When God has given to us so abundantly, why would we not share? When we have all we need in Christ, we don't have to preserve and protect when we know that Jesus gave his life willingly and freely and rose from the dead, we can entrust that no seed thrown is wasted. So it's three things. It changes our heart from selfish to selfless. It stirs us with a confidence and a generosity. And then finally, it gives us hope that this promise is true. Not an ounce of Jesus' blood was wasted. Let's pray. Father, as it says in Titus, you have by grace... Called together a people for your name, zealous for good works. And now we see reason for zeal. Because we know that because you've given your spirit and because you have created this, raw, uh, this law of sowing and reaping, that any cost we bear is an investment. And at the same time, Lord, we know, we've tasted, we've seen, and yet we need to remember again that we can also invest in our flesh, that we're still free to do so, but we're not free to avoid reaping the consequence. And so I pray that you would help us to accomplish that big old word of walking circumspectly, that we would have eyes open to where paths lead, and that, we, what, that we would know that what we feed will fatten and what we plant will grow. I pray, Lord, that we would live out this newfound freedom we have available in Jesus Christ to invest fervently and thoroughly and abundantly in the fruit of the Spirit. Because even though those little things seem small and hard and insignificant, in them, intrinsically, by the power of the Spirit, is the nature of abundance. We can trust that what we sow, you will multiply. We thank you for this in Jesus' name, in whom we pray. Amen.